Before we dive into verse 16 of Mark chapter 2, let's get a bit of a running start, which will kind of give us a bit of recap from last week's study. To begin with, Jesus has called Levi, also known as Matthew, to be one of his disciples, to be one of his followers. Levi responds by accepting the invitation. Then, instead of heading back, presumably to Peter's home, which was Jesus' headquarters there in Capernaum, Levi invites Jesus to come over to his pad for dinner, to which Jesus accepts the invitation and makes his way to Matthew's house. Now, knowing that Jesus and his other disciples, his other followers, would be hanging out after supper, Levi takes it upon himself to invite all of his friends to come and also hang out with Jesus. And so we kind of have this picture of kind of a, of a clash, like oil and water. It's two different groups of people, Jesus and his followers, and then Matthew's old friends, the other tax collectors, other sinners, other like prostitutes and people that were uh, morally depraved. And then there's Levi, kind of like between these two groups of people, his new friends with Jesus and his old friends from his past life. Now, the result of the evening, according to Mark's account, is that many of Levi's friends end up having the same encounter with Jesus that Levi had had earlier in the day. Many of these sinners, from just being in the presence of Jesus, are captured. And they too, like Matthew, desire to forsake all to follow Christ. But in the midst of this cool party, this dinner, this great scene of activity, in the midst of it, there were a group of party crashers. Mark 16, verse 16, Mark 2. And when the scribes and the Pharisees saw him, that being Jesus, eating with the tax collectors and the sinners, they said to his disciples, how is it that Jesus eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? Now, our first question this morning that we have to address, we have to answer, is who had beef with Jesus? Now, it's very easy for us to just say the scribes and the Pharisees. But truth be told, for most Christians, we don't know who those two groups of people actually are. They're common words we throw around when we have Bible studies, and most of the, 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 the teachers that I listen to expound upon this passage skip right over the identification of these two groups of people, not to mention some of you might not be biblically educated at all, and so I don't want to make the assumption, you know who these people are, the scribes and the Pharisees. So let's begin, the party crashers, the first group, are the Jewish scribes. Now these guys were the distinguished, educated, professional legal community within Israel. They were and claimed to be the unbiased authority when it came to Jewish law and traditions. They didn't have any political affiliation. They were just kind of more of the authority. Their jobs, obviously, would associate them with lawyers, government ministers, and judges. In some case, it was even known that the scribes would copy documents, even in some instances, scripture. The second group of people are the Pharisees. Now, this group was a political party. 
They were a political party of Jews that rose to prominence during the second temple period following the Maccabean Revolution. Now, we don't have time to get into that. You might want to jot down some of those things and study the rise of the Pharisees on your own. They come to power following a Maccabean Revolution against the Romans. The people are put down. This political party rises up. They're known as the Pharisees. One of the most famous Pharisees was a first century historian named Josephus, who claimed the Pharisees received the backing of the common man. In contrast, by the way, to the more elite, liberal Sadducees. You might say that the Pharisees were in the majority opinion. The Pharisees were the conservatives. They were the fundamentalists of the day. They believed in a literal interpretation of scripture and a literal application of scripture. They also accepted extra biblical authorities such as the Talmud and the Mishnah as also being divinely inspired and thus needing to be obeyed. The biggest difference between the Pharisees and any of their contemporaries is the fact that they believed that the Jews had to obey the laws of purity that existed in temple activity outside of temple activity. They stressed a strict obedience to the Jewish laws and the Jewish traditions in the attempts of staying off assimilation. You might have described the Pharisees as the nationalists. They were patriotic. Josephus notes that the Pharisees were considered the most expert and accurate expositors of the Jewish law. They were the moral majority. Their authority, it was said, was considered so great that they themselves claimed prophetic or mosaic authority when representing or interpreting Jewish laws. So you have the scribes who are the educated lawyers, uh, unbiased authority on things. And then you also have the Pharisees who are the conservatives, the fundamentalists. They believe in the law a literal interpretation of the law. They want to apply the law. They're nationalistic. They don't want to see the culture being weighed down by progressive influences. These are the Pharisees. They're the goody-two-shoes. They're the well-doers. They're the right. It's the Pharisees. And so these are the two groups of people that are party-crashing. They're the people who had beef with Jesus, which leads us to our second obvious question, and that is, what was their beef? Like, what, what was the beef that they had with Jesus? Now, the first issue that they had was the fact that Jesus ate and drank with tax collectors and sinners. Our passage basically tells us this. Now, it's easy to think that the issue that the Pharisees and the scribes would have with Jesus would be the company that Jesus kept, the fact that these were tax collectors and sinners and not exactly uh, upstanding moral citizens. And though it would be true that this would be an issue all in and of itself, the secondary, this would be a secondary issue to a greater problem that they had with Jesus. But before you can really unpack that, you have to understand that an underlying issue was the significance with our story here, their problem. 
Yes, Jesus ate and drank with tax collectors and sinners. They had a problem with the fact that they were tax collectors and sinners. But what they also had a problem with was the fact that Jesus was eating with them, that Jesus was sharing a meal with them. And to understand that, you have to understand the significance that sharing a meal had in the Middle East. The Jews viewed, these scribes and Pharisees viewed, eating together, eating at all, as a mystical experience. Now let me lay this out in the most logical way possible. First, because they viewed food as being clean or unclean, and because food could defile a person, and secondly, they believed that you became what you ate, you were very particular when it came to your dietary guidelines. Food could be clean or unclean. What I put in my mouth becomes part of me. So I need to be very careful what I'm eating because I don't want what is unclean to enter my mouth. That then makes me unclean as well. Simple logic. But then it progresses another, another element because sharing a meal in the Middle East was a very community or communal experience. They were often big bowls of food. They didn't have silverware. It was the process of of taking it with your hands and putting it on the plate and ripping off bread from from the community bread and dipping it into the sauce. And people are are, uh, double dipping, you know what I mean? And so you're sharing a meal, you're eating. It's this very communal, personal experience. You're all eating out of the same bowl that they believed because what you were putting in you, someone else was actually putting in themselves, and because you were what you ate, by sharing a meal with someone, you were becoming part of the other person, that you were identifying with them, that you were unifying yourself. That's why, obviously, they were very particular with who they shared a meal with. You see, these scribes and these Pharisees are seeing, yes, that Jesus is hanging out with tax collectors and sinners, But it's the fact that he's eating with them, that he's identifying with them, that he's becoming one with them. That's what what bugged them. That's what irritated them. That's what they couldn't understand. But understand that I think the issue ran even deeper than the fact that Jesus hung out with questionable character and that he would choose to identify himself with sinners. The issue was the fact, yes, that Jesus ate and drank with tax collectors and sinners. But the core problem, I believe, was the fact Jesus chose the sinners instead of them. You see, it wasn't just that Jesus was hanging out with tax collectors and sinners and sharing a meal with them. It was the fact that Jesus was doing this instead of hanging out with them. They were jealous. There was a bit of envy. These men, these scribes, and these Pharisees, They were men of establishment. They were religious. They were wealthy. They were men of power, men of prestige. They represented the religious elite, the it crowd, the holy rollers. These men were experts in the law, zealous in their obedience to it. These men were seen as holy. They were the best that Judaism had to offer, and they couldn't understand why Jesus would choose to eat with them, sinners, when he could spend his time instead socializing with them. His answer to this is very simple. Let's continue. Verse 17. So when Jesus heard it, he said to them, 
Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, Jesus is very direct in his explanation and explaining his behavior. Now, as the ZAIT would translate this passage, and that's the Zach Adams International Translation, so it's, it's going to be a big thing coming up, I promise. The Zach Adams International Translation would basically see Jesus' response like this. Let me paraphrase it. Let me give you the Zach Adams version of the message. Why am I here with these tax collectors, these prostitutes, these immoral people? Why am I hanging out with sinners, Jesus would say? Why am I spending time with the lost? Because they're the very people I came to save. I came to heal those who are sick. I came to call to repentance those who are lost. This is what Jesus is saying to them. Now, now don't forget, they don't ask Jesus why he's hanging out with these people, why he's identifying the, with these people, why he's choosing those people over them. He comes, they come to the disciples, and Jesus overhears it and interjects himself into the conversation. Now, my first observation is that Jesus was great with sinners. I think it's awesome that Jesus had the ability to be in the presence of sinners, convey the reality that he wasn't condoning their sin, and yet still be able to demonstrate a tangible love for them, that they were willing to repent and turn from their sin. Let's be honest, that, that's an accomplishment. That's a miracle that Jesus could hang out with them that Jesus was able to reject a person's sinful behavior in such a way that, think about it, the person wasn't offended or placed on the defensive. That the person didn't feel judged when Jesus rejected their sinful behavior. They didn't feel condemned in Jesus' presence. They didn't feel alienated. Instead, the person sensed such a genuine love from Jesus that a love for Jesus only seemed logical and decent. Jesus could hang out with sinners and not be condoning of their behavior, but communicate a love that was magnetic. You know, as Christians, it would be best, well, it would just be wise for us to adopt the heart of Jesus when it comes to dealing with the loss around us. Often when we encounter the culture, we immediately, by the way that we go about doing it, set whoever we're talking to on their heels where they're defensive or they end up being offended or they feel judged or they feel condemned or they feel alienated. None of that Jesus did while he was still able to say, I reject your sin, but he loved them. And that love so overrode everything else. It was so powerful. It was so magical, tangible, real that the people gravitated to it. But understand, and this is my second observation, that Jesus was direct in his intentions. Sure, Jesus was called, and I think this is one of the greatest titles for Jesus. Jesus was called a friend of sinners. But please don't allow liberal Christians to twist this idea into meaning something that it doesn't. There are those today in our Christian society who try to frame Jesus' love of the sinner as meaning he was tolerant and accepting of the sinner's sin. 
I hear people say this all the time. Jesus loves me just the way I am. Have you ever heard that? Have you ever heard that in talking with someone who's blatantly in sin, doing whatever they want to do, and and you're trying to have a conversation, and they immediately blast back at you, Jesus loves me just the way I am. This is my answer. My answer is very simple. You're absolutely correct. Jesus loves you just the way that you are. But you forget that Jesus loves you so much He actually wants to make you into something better than you presently are. Jesus loves you the way that you are, but Jesus isn't content with the way that you are. He wants to transform you into something better, something greater. We don't come to Christ because we're good with the way things are. We want to grow and mature and be transformed. Understand, Jesus didn't come to just hang out with sinners and by doing so, justify their continued sinful behavior by his presence. Jesus came to save people from their sin. Jesus came to transform lives by changing them from the inside out. Jesus loves me just the way that I am. You know what? You're absolutely right. As a matter of fact, he loves you so much the way that you are, he died on the cross to make you something better. And we often overlook that or we miss it. My third observation is that these party crashers completely miss the point. Like they totally miss Jesus's message entirely. I think it's sad, but I can see, I can imagine these scribes and Pharisees listening to Jesus's explanation, nodding their heads in righteous agreement, walking away even satisfied with his response, And Jesus standing there kind of in disbelief. You see, I can see these guys reasoning among themselves. You know, I was a little upset that Jesus would choose to hang out with these people instead of us. But you know, his answer made a lot of sense. He's evidently a rabbi with a heart for the lost of Israel. And men like us, men like you and I, who are well, well, he said it. We have no need of a physician and the righteous like us. We have no need for repentance. You know, I kind of understand why Jesus would choose to hang out with sinners because he came to save the lost. And we're not the lost. We're well. And he said, we we don't need him. We're righteous. We don't need him. Now, here's where they missed the point. Who were the well or righteous people that Jesus was referring to. Was Jesus in saying that the, those who are well have no need of a physician and those who are, are righteous have no need of repentance? Was Jesus talking about the Pharisees and the scribes standing there? I think they thought Jesus was talking about them. Was Jesus talking about the priests that were maybe back at the temple? You know, the irony to Jesus' statement is that no one fits the description. There's zero people that fit Jesus' description. As experts of the law, they should have known this. What Jesus was saying, and I believe he was saying it with a certain level of sarcasm, these guys took literally. Now, according to Scripture, we've all fallen short of the glory of God, thus making every single person sick with sin and unrighteous before the Most High God. 
Though the Pharisees and scribes, to their credit, probably tried much harder to be moral than Jesus' present company. They were just as lost in their sin. God had been crystal clear to Israel that to disobey one law was to transgress the entire law. Think about it this way. How many lies do you have to tell to be a liar? I mean, just one. How many people do you have to kill to be a murderer? How many times do you have to cheat on your spouse to be a cheater? One transgression, and you transgress the whole law. The issue with these religious leaders was the reality. They either simply didn't realize, or they were simply oblivious to, or they simply ignored the truth that they were just as sick and lost as the sinners they were looking down upon and judging. Why is Jesus hanging out with them when he should be hanging out with us? They were thinking they were better. Of all the people that Jesus would have a consistent problem with, of all the people Jesus would have beef with, it wasn't the sinners or the tax collectors. It wasn't the down and outers or the lost. The people that Jesus had beef with over and over and over again were these self-righteous religious leaders. Now, in the remaining verses of chapter 2, Mark does something very interesting for us. Mark provides two examples of how Jesus was constantly looking for opportunities to poke holes in this man-induced religious facade. Mark, giving us two examples, is going to lay out for us the basis for these men's self-righteousness and how the basis for this was moral comparisons. Verses 18 through 22, and if you're a note taker, you just might want to jot this down. This was the basis for the Pharisees and the scribes, self-righteousness and moral comparison. And this will be how Jesus deals with them. But Mark 18 through verse 22, you might just title it, we're doing something for God that you aren't doing. Like this is the basis for self-righteousness by moral comparison. The Pharisees saw that they were doing something for God that other people weren't doing. And then in verses 23 through 28, it ends up being we're not doing something for God that you are doing. This was the basis for their self-righteousness. Now let's just dive into it. Verse 18. The disciples of John and of the Pharisees were fasting. And they came and they said to Jesus, why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. Now though we know at this point in history very little about who the disciples of John are, we do know a bit about the Pharisees. The Pharisees were known for fasting two days a week. On two separate occasions, they would deny their bodies physical sustenance as an outward demonstration of their love and their dedication and their devotion to God. They would often do this, by the way, accompanied with sackcloth and ashes, and, and they would go out onto the street corner and they would pray, and people would look at them and say, wow, they fast twice a week. Look how holy they are. Look how righteous they are. From the Pharisees' perspective, it was we're doing something for God that you're not, and that makes us holier than you. 
the nature of their question is based in this self-righteous perspective. I can hear them say, once again, this is my translation of what we read. We fast, even the disciples of John fast. Why is it that your disciples don't show the kind of devotion to God that we do? Basically, we're doing something for God that you aren't doing, which was their basis for self-righteousness. Now, the problem with their logic is very, very simple here. Think about it with a simple question. If you're doing more for God than what's required by God, are you more righteous for it? Let me repeat that. If you're doing more for God than what's required by God, are you more righteous for it? Now, though I don't want to go off on a rabbit trail, I'm going to end up doing that. Because I think it's important here for us to address the idea of fasting as we know it from Scripture and church history. Not only will this help address this particular question, but I think it will correct some of the misconceptions that float around Christian circles, religious circles, about fasting. One of the things about teaching verse by verse, chapter by chapter, is that when you get to a topic such as fasting, you need to take advantage of the opportunity to address it biblically because the truth of the matter is that when you move on, you might not get another opportunity to address fasting again. So we're going to take some time and I'm going to lay out the idea of fasting. First, let me give you a definition. And this definition is three-pronged. First, traditionally, fasting can be seen as an act of willingly abstaining from some or all food or drink for a given period of time. Now, traditionally, fasting can happen for medical reasons, such as you're wanting to purify your body of certain toxins that you might have been introducing by eating the wrong things. Like, you can diet and fast for medical, for health reasons. Traditional fasting. There's practical fasting. Fasting as the act of willful abstinence can simply mean taking a break from something you find necessary or enjoyable, such as food, drink, sex, entertainment, etc., with the intention of increased physical pleasure or enjoyment once you've returned from the fast. So there's a traditional view on fasting, such as, well, abstaining from food and drinking these things can be healthy for me, and that's true. There's some science behind that. Practical fasting is, you know what, I'm going to take a break from certain things, with the intention of after the break, I'm going to come back to them and enjoy them more. Sex and food and drink and entertainment. Sometimes you want to take a break and fast from that thing so that when you come back, it's more enjoyable. Kind of setting your equilibrium back. But then spiritually, which is this third category, traditionally, practically, spiritually, fasting is seen by many religions, and it's not just a Christian thing, as a way to deny your flesh something it desires in order to allow your spirit to grow stronger and become more dominant over your flesh and its desires. Now, let me give you the biblical framework for fasting because very few of us have ever studied fasting from a biblical perspective, myself included, until this week. The only time we find fasting mandated specifically in the law of Moses. So the only time that fasting's in the law at all is one day a year. 
The Jews were told to fast one day a year according to the law on the day of atonement, Leviticus 16. And this came once a year. This custom was also called the fasting day in Jeremiah 36, or known simply as the fast, Acts 27. The first mention of fasting in the Bible, most of you would get this wrong. It's interesting. The first mention of fasting is when Moses fasted for 40 days while God was providing him the law in Deuteronomy 9. It's interesting to note that there is no mention of fasting at all in the book of Genesis, meaning none of the patriarchs, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, run down the list, none of them, at least according to biblical history, ever fasted. The father of faith, Abraham, never fasted. The only individual fasting mentioned in Scripture, aside from Moses, in the Old Testament, we have David fasting, we have the people of Nineveh fasting, we have the Jews of Persia fasting. The only mentions of individual fasting. In the New Testament, we have the prophetess Anna, Jesus, Paul, and Barnabas only mentioned. King Jehoshaphat, the prophet Joel, and Queen Esther called for national fasting. Isaiah chastised the Israelites in Isaiah 58 for unrighteous methods and motives in their fasting. And in Matthew 9, Jesus would reiterate some of, math, some of Isaiah's recommendations. The only time that fasting is mentioned in the Pauline epistles is in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, when Paul says to the Corinthians, you may give yourself to fasting and prayer and come again speaking sexually, by the way, so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this, interestingly enough, as a concession and not a commandment. Extra biblical Jewish and Christian writings seem to place a greater emphasis on the activity than the Bible does. For both the Jews in Jesus' day and Roman Catholics to follow, fasting was seen, and it still is today, as a way to prove your loyalty to God by bringing the flesh into submission. Many Christians also feel the, way, feel the same way. And Protestantism, which was a rejection of Catholicism, the Reformers rejected these traditions and they criticized fasting as purely an external observance that can never gain a person favor with God. John Calvin argued against fasting by saying that the entire life of a religious person, person should be tempered with sobriety in such a way as to produce a perpetual fasting. He taught a lifestyle of fasting, not the act of fasting. The Swiss reformer Zwingli, he rejected it completely. As a matter of fact, history tells us that on Lent, Zwingli led this ostentatious demonstration in the public square where he and all of his followers on the day of Lent ate sausages to say that it meant nothing. The Reformation, Protestantism, rejected fasting. So what do we mean by all this? Or what am I implying? Now what I'm about to say, you can disagree with. And you're, that's, that's A-okay. But as far as my understanding from a scriptural and a biblical basis, if you want to fast for traditional or practical reasons, go for it. For health reasons, or to be able to come back to an activity and enjoy it more, by all means. But if you feel compelled to fast 
for spiritual reasons, I think you might be misguided and may I dare say be caught in the same self-righteous trap that the Pharisees were caught in. Now let me explain why I said this. First, the Bible never mandates the New Testament believer to fast. It's not commanded like communion or baptism or prayer or even witnessing. Though Jesus did address fasting, he addresses the concept and context of the religious Jewish culture of his day. And though Jesus personally fasted for 40 days in the wilderness temptation, according to Mark, Jesus never commanded or taught his disciples to fast. Though Paul does address fasting in 1 Corinthians, it seems, as we looked at, that it was a practical exercise concerning sex. Take some time off for a given period of time and then come back to it, but doesn't even Paul go so far as to make sure his suggestion is not viewed as a commandment? So the Bible never mandates the New Testament believer to fast. Secondly, fasting is not, let me repeat that, is not a tool for gaining victory over the flesh. And I think this is where Christians get misguided. I heard one respected pastor, I mean, I admire a lot in preparing for this morning's Bible study. I heard him describe fasting as taking time to feed the white dog of the spirit while starving out the black dog of the flesh, that that was the purpose and intention of fasting. The problem with the analogy is it's not biblical at all. Let me ask, wouldn't denying the flesh by the works of the flesh in the end foster pride in the flesh? I'll repeat that. Wouldn't denying the flesh by the works of the flesh in the end foster pride in the flesh? Self-denial doesn't automatically mean spiritual refreshment. Just because you refuse the flesh doesn't mean you're feeding the spirit. I'll hear people say that they're going on a fast because they need to reprioritize their life. I need to give my spirit, Zach, an opportunity to grow stronger while I beat back down that flesh. And though that desire is well intended, it too is not biblical. Are we actually able to beat down the flesh? Is that something we can do? If I am able to gain a personal victory over one area, isn't it true that I tend to fall into pride in another? People that go on fast, by the way, end up being really prideful people about their fast. They talk about it a lot. Guess what fast I did? Dude, I don't even care. I went on all hamburger fast last week. That's all I ate was hamburgers. It was awesome. Like, really? Like, I abstained from this, or I did this, in the sense that they're doing this, and then they're explaining this, and they're taking pride in the behavior, and it fosters self-righteousness. I love this quote. If self could dethrone self, it would wear the victor's crown. Sad to say, people with this view on fasting, I'm going to beat down the flesh, you know, they end up fasting a lot because they are not actually beating down the flesh. Ephesians chapter 6 is very clear how we gain victory over the flesh. Paul says, if we walk in the spirit, then we won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. 
Get your eyes off the flesh and instead focus on the spirit. This sounds to me a lot more like Calvin's approach to fasting. Instead of exerting the effort to deny the flesh through a fast, spend your energy walking in the spirit. Thirdly, fasting has no bearing on my relationship with God. Do you realize you don't need to do anything to show your dedication to God but follow Jesus? Fasting doesn't earn me heavenly dollars when I've already been given an eternal inheritance. It doesn't purify my spirit when I've already been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. I've also heard pastors teach that fasting is important because it it brings you closer to God. I couldn't disagree more. If a work could bring me closer to God, something I do, if something I engaged in could make me more righteous before God or cause God to listen to me and my prayers more intently, if that was the case, you'll have a very hard time rationalizing a very large portion of the book of Romans. Not to mention that it's by Jesus' work on the cross that I can boldly enter the throne of grace. Fasting does not expedite the process. Fourthly, fasting can lead, in the end, to a false sense of moral standing. As it had done with the Pharisees, these men, they saw the act of self-denial through fasting as a way to show their dedication and devotion to God, though God had never asked them to do this. They fasted twice a week. God hadn't asked them to do that. God hadn't commanded them to do that. Twice a week when God only said fast once a year. The, the act, their act, was nothing more than an empty religious ritual that created a false sense of self-righteousness. These men, like Christians today, went so far that they ended up using fasting as the justification that they were more righteous than Jesus' disciples. Though fasting isn't a bad thing, and I'm not advocating that there isn't a place for fasting in the life of the believer, but we do come back to the root question. If you're doing more for God than what's required by God, fasting, are you more righteous for it? And the answer is clearly no. If you want to fast, go for it. Fast for the right reasons, but never think that it increases your relational status with God, causes God to listen more intently, or makes you more righteous than the brother who isn't partaking of the same fast. Jesus is addressing self-righteousness. We're better than the people you're hanging out with, so why aren't you hanging out with us? And Jesus is like, you're not better. As a matter of fact, the whole basis for how you think you're better is flawed. Because you fast, you think that makes you better than the sinners? God never asked you to do that. You know, fasting, it's just one topic. But you know, there's lots of things as Christians that we do, behaviors that we engage in, that God has never asked us to, but we do it and then we feel more righteous than other people. It's a shame. Well, I only listen to Christian music. I only listen to Chris Tomlin. It's the only thing in my CD player. 
Okay, what's your point? Oh, I'm not really making a point. No, you are making a point. You're saying that because I don't have Chris Tomlin in my CD player and instead have Dave Matthews Band or Mumford and Sons that you're actually more pleasing to God than I am. The problem is, is that God hasn't like weighed in on this issue exactly. No, Chris Tomlin won't be the worship leader of heaven. People will say, well, I don't watch certain television shows or certain movies. Well, that, listen, that's fine. You have your prerogative. That's great. No big deal. But here's the problem. People will often take these stances and then they'll look at other people who don't take those stances and what's the natural tendency? God's more proud of me because I don't do this and I don't do that and I don't do this and I don't do that and I do all these other things for God that these people aren't. And Jesus, Jesus would just say, like, really? Like, that's why I think, and, and, and read back, he says, he says, when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well, and I can even say, like, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. The problem was not that they were well or righteous. They weren't. The problem was that they thought they were. And thus, they concluded they were better. The only people Jesus has a beef with are the self-righteous. Because self-righteousness, it leads me to a false conclusion that in and of myself, I'm anything. My righteousness has nothing on my own account. I am only righteous before God because of Jesus and the work that he did on the cross. There was nothing I could do to earn that righteousness. It was something given to me, bestowed to me by Jesus. And then I should continue to always view myself in that light. I'm a dirt bag trying, but I'm so glad that Jesus' grace and his righteousness covers me. And that keeps my relationship with God where it needs to be. But you know what else, what else it also does? It keeps my relationships with other people exactly where it needs to be as well. Because if my righteousness comes from Jesus and not me, then that doesn't make me better than anybody else who's also receiving their righteousness from God. Now, I told you last week that we were going to finish chapter 2. And when we covered three verses, my wife has rebuked me and just told me not to make empty promises. So I won't be doing that anymore. We're going to continue in the Gospel of Mark. We will be in chapter 2 next week. We will be picking up with the verse that we left off. How far we get, it's in the Lord's hands, but I am no longer making promises. Father, Lord, we thank you for your word and what it says to us. And Lord, I pray, I pray that we don't allow this to go in, in one ear and out the other. In Jesus' name, amen. As I was praying, the Lord said one more thing to me. Often when we hear something like this, you know where our mind goes? 
to the people around us that we think are self-righteous. And we start thinking, I really hope so-and-so heard this because they are so self-righteous. And you realize that that very reaction is self-righteous. It's self-righteous. Well, hey, Calvary 316. We believe it's by teaching God's word that Jesus transforms us. And I hope that you have some things that you can go out and work on this week and allow the Lord's grace to work in you and through you. And then I hope that you can go out and you can reach someone with the gospel, that you can have the same heart of Jesus, not to be condemning or to be judgmental or to be alienating, but to approach the loss with the heart of Jesus, that your questions ooze with love and your comments ooze with love so that there's the presence of Jesus coming out from you because that's what draws people. That's what saves people.